And he carried on with his job, and the civil servants puffed out their chests. They said, excuse me, did you not hear who we are? We are very important civil servants, representatives of Her Majesty's government. And we can, hang on a second. So he gets in his bag, and he's rummaging through his bag, and he pulls out, he says, ah, this is what I was looking for, pulls out this card. He says, can you see this card? This card means that I can go onto any agricultural land in the whole of England and Wales by order of Her Majesty's government. And the guy said, all right, yeah, go on then, there's the field over there. So he gets on with his jobs. Half an hour later, he's still getting on with his jobs and he can hear some screams. He turns around, he looks in the field over there, the one he told the civil servants they shouldn't go into. And they are running, running and screaming for the fence. And behind them, the farmer's prize bull, gaining on them, stride by stride. He looks up. The civil servants scream, save us, save us, save us. What should we do? The farmer carries on with his work and he says, show him your card. (laughs) Ben read to us from Matthew 21, a story that we usually read on Palm Sunday, the week before Easter Sunday. It tells the story as Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and the people line the roads and they shout Hosanna, a word that's so well used in our Christianity now that we don't even bother translating it from its original language when we have English language versions of the Bible. It means save us, save us. And for those of us who were brought up in the church, it seems to have a pretty straightforward meaning, doesn't it? The meaning of this passage is pretty simple and it fits quite nicely with a pretty simple view of what salvation is, of what the gospel is. We are sinners, Jesus comes to save us from that sin and Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was the beginning of that salvation for us from our original individual sin. But here's the thing, when the crowds shouted Hosanna, I'm not sure that's what those people were shouting about at all. I think they were talking about something else, something far more practical than the spiritual thing that we've made it over the years. Now to understand this, We have to go back a few thousand years. But the plan for this morning is that we've only got 20 minutes to do this bit. Then we're going to play some music. There'll be some paper that's passed around. And you can write down any questions that you have about any of this stuff. And then we will attempt to answer some of those questions. So, given I've only got 20 minutes, and I've wasted the first five minutes of it telling a funny story, we're going to have to race through this next bit, okay? So we've got a few thousand years of history, uh, and we're going to try and go through it fairly quickly. So, right at the beginning of the Old Testament in Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament, we meet a man called Abram, who later becomes known as Abraham, and he becomes the father of Israel, the nation that God chooses. Things don't exactly go that well for Abraham's people, and they end up slaves in Egypt, the dreaded empire, the superpower of the day for about 400 years. Then along comes a man called Moses, who with God's help completes the exodus, the rescue of the Israelite people from Egypt. And after a lot of desert wandering, finally the people of Israel enter the promised land. They are finally truly free. They are where they are meant to be in God's land. However, that isn't where the story ends. Israel decides it doesn't want to fully trust in God, but follows the rest of the world and decides it needs a king to rule over them. And this, well, 
let's just say it goes badly. There are two books in the Old Testament called Kings 1 and 2 Kings, which describe a lot of this history. And one theologian says that instead of calling these books Kings, we should put a question mark at the end. Instead of Kings, it should be Kings? Really? Was this the best thing you could come up with? Kings? In fact, it goes so badly that the north and the south of the country split into separate kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. By now, Egypt is no longer the superpower ravaging the world. That's now Assyria. And Assyria soon takes over Israel. Then comes an even more super, super, superpower, Babylon. And they not only take Israel from the Assyrians, but they also take Judah in the south. So what was God's promised land is now just a small province in Babylon. Over the years, more empires come and go. The Persians roll out the Babylonians. The Greeks come in and take over from the Persians. And then the Roman emperor um, comes and takes, the Roman empire takes over from the Greeks. In all of this time, God's chosen people don't control their own land. They're living under an oppressive regime where they aren't free to worship God as they want. They can't set their own laws. They have to pay huge taxes to whichever power is in charge at the time and more and more and more. Now, of course, they tried to stop this. There were many, many uprisings. Many times the Jewish people tried to fight back against whichever empire, whichever superpower was running the country at that time. There are thousands of stories of Jews being killed thousands of Jews every day, stories of entire towns being burned into the ground, not just enough force to stop the uprising, but much more than that, to really show the Jewish people who was in charge here, to show them the futility of trying an uprising like that, and to show them what would happen if they tried again. So every day, the Jewish people lived in desperate hope of a Messiah, a liberator, someone who would come and save them, someone who would come and drive the Romans away and take back the land that their God had promised to them. Now, these people all knew the Jewish scriptures, what we'd call the Old Testaments. They knew the prophecies about the Messiah who would come and save them. Like this one, written by a man called Zechariah. This is Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So when Jesus, this man everyone's been talking about, rides into town on a donkey, just like Zechariah said, of course they're going to shout, save us. Save us. Save us from the Romans. Do you see how this is totally different to some of the stories that we've been told about this passage. We've taken everything practical out of this story. We've only left the spiritual. We've totally spiritualized this story. We've made it into something that's about us, personally, just spiritual. We've taken all of the context out of this. The Jewish people were desperate. Save us. Save us. 
I would argue that we've got salvation wrong. We've made it into this ethereal, spiritual thing, which is about praying the right prayer so we end up in the good place, not the bad place. We've taken it out of the context and we've made it a totally personal thing. So when you read the Bible this way, Jesus' death becomes just God's way of finding a scapegoat so my individual personal sins can be forgiven. And we ignore the fact that the Romans, the ruling superpower of the day, would have seen Jesus as a dangerous political revolutionary, the next in line of messiahs who would try and stand up against them and end Roman occupation. So of course they were going to kill him. That's what the Romans did. I would argue the cross isn't about the anger of God, the wrath of God. The cross is about the anger of humans, the wrath of humans. It's a similar story with the word that's usually translated as salvation in the New Testament, sozo. This is the word that appears in the story that Dave read to us a few weeks ago when he was talking about the story of Paul being shipwrecked. Uh, Acts 27, verses 27 to 31, uh, saying, On the 14th night we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When the sailors sensed they were approaching land, they took soundings and they found the water 120 feet deep. A short time later they took soundings again and found it was only 90 feet deep. They feared we would be dashed against the rocks. They dropped four anchors and they prayed for daylight. The sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea in an attempt to escape. And Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. Saved, sozo. Paul wasn't talking about going to heaven when he died. He was talking about being saved, being rescued from the storm. Throughout the Bible, we see that salvation is for the here and now. It's not just about what happens at the end of our life. So what does this mean for us? How are we to work out what salvation means for us in this church in Waterloo in the 21st century? Well, I think the story of the gospel, the good news of Jesus is about the here and now and not just about getting to heaven when you die. We are called to so much more than this. We often say here this, if the good news really is good news, it has to be good news for every person at every level, physically, spiritually, socially, educationally, emotionally, economically, and environmentally. What that is, good news physically, spiritually, socially, educationally, emotionally, economically, and environmentally, what that is, is the practical outworking of another Hebrew word, shalom. It's a practical outworking of shalom. Shalom is often translated into English as peace, but it means so much more than that. It means completeness, nothing missing, nothing broken, well-being, wholeness. I believe Jesus came to bring shalom. And this is why this church is so integrated into our community. It isn't that we're following Jesus, which makes us nice people, so we do good things. It's that the very act of running a food bank, running a debt advice center, running schools, 
That is part of the good news of Jesus. That is part of the gospel. This is why we say we run schools, not that we go to a church that also is part of a charity that has an education bit that runs schools. We run schools because the schools are a practical outworking of our theology here. As most of you will know, we share this room with the secondary school, Oasis Academy Southbank, that we set up a few years ago. It's a church hall on a Sunday, and it's a school hall Monday to Friday. Um, Carly Mitchell, the principal of Oasis Academy Southbank, since we created it, left last week uh, to go and live in Tokyo, where her husband is going to be working for the next couple of years. And when she left in her leaving speech, she said thank you to the church for being willing to share your space with a secondary school we realized that the community needed a secondary school so we gave up this space willingly so that we could do that so that we could start a school and six years later last summer that secondary school got its first set of GCSE results. Now, lots of you will know that the way that schools used to be judged at secondary level was on GCSE results, and it was where the kids got five grade A star to C, including maths and English. And the percentage of kids that got that meant that you were doing well or you weren't doing well. But there are loads of different ways now that schools are measured, and one of them is what they call the deprivation gap. There's a massive issue in this country between the results that are got by kids who get pupil premium funding and those who don't. Pupil premium funding is given to any child who comes from a household where the total income of that household is less than £16,000. So they get the pupil premium funding and all the other kids don't. And the gap between the results of those who do and those who don't is a massive issue for education in this country. But our school, Oasis Academy South Bank, last summer, the pupil premium kids outperformed the non-people premium kids. Our deprivation gap is negative. There are hardly any schools, hardly any schools that do this as well as us. We're one of the top ten schools in the country for this. That's unbelievable, isn't it? We're transforming the life chances of these kids. If the good news really is good news, it has to be good news for every person at every level, physically, spiritually, socially, educationally, emotionally, economically, and environmentally. I've not got much time left, so I'll tell you one more story, then I'll stop for questions. Last week in work, we met a guy, I'm going to call him George. George is a 62-year-old man who has serious health issues. He used to receive a benefit called Employment and Support Allowance, but it stopped suddenly when he failed to attend a medical examination because of his health issues, which meant he couldn't get to his medical examination. Um, He can hardly read or write, and he has no access to a phone or the internet. This was picked up by a support worker who was helping him back into his house after a lengthy stay in hospital. She took him to the job centre to try and sort out his benefits, but she's not an expert in this. So she called our advice centre here to see if we could help with any of this. George was told that he would have to claim universal credit. The person at the job centre said, can I take your email address? George said, I've never had an email address. The person at the job centre said, well, you've got to have an email address to apply for universal credit. I'll create one for you. Now, bearing in mind that George can hardly read or write, he doesn't have a phone, he doesn't have access to the internet, 
and he's never used a computer in his entire life. And the main way they're going to try and contact him is through this email address that he doesn't even understand how to use. So then George gets told that once he signs up for Universal Credit, once all that uh, process has gone through, there's a five-week wait. What that means is that you don't get any money for five weeks at all. So you've lost your ESA because your health issues mean that you can't get to an appointment, which means you've now got to apply for universal credit instead. And for the next five weeks, no income. So that's when his support worker called Rebecca panicking because she didn't know how to help him. Can he not get any money sooner? Is there nothing else we can do? Is there no alternative to universal credit? Can he apply for something else instead? And then Rebecca says, no. Sadly, there is no alternative. If you're in a universal credit rollout area, you've got to apply for universal credit. That's it. And the only thing we can do, the only way he can get any money for the next five weeks is to apply for what's called an advance. Now, if you take out an advance, then that's basically a loan from the DWP, and they take it back out of your universal credit over the next six to 12 months. And universal credit is already set at such a limit that it's basically the lowest amount that you can live on. So you've got two chances. A, no income at all for five weeks, or B, live for the next six to 12 months on not enough money. Some choice, eh? So for the next five weeks, George is afraid he could lose his house, that he'll have no means to heat his house or buy food or any other basics. We're afraid that on top of this, he might get sanctioned, might get his benefits cut, because he's often too unwell to go to the job centre and do the things that the job centre have asked him to do. He now has our advice centre supporting him. He's got a support worker and he's got a social worker, but none of those are an adequate replacement for a benefit system that actually works properly, that supports those in need when they need it. The sad thing is that George's story is nowhere near the worst of the stories that I could tell you. It just happens to be the most recent one. There is no reason why there needs to be a five-week wait. No reason at all. It's a decision that's been ta taken. Now, the Trussell Trust, who manage hundreds of food banks across the UK, including the Waterloo Food Bank that we run through those doors there, they've seen a huge increase in people needing their food banks in areas where universal credit has been rolled out. We're one of those areas. We've seen our food bank increase uh, massively over the last year or so. So the Trussell Trust have come up with this campaign. Um, it's called Five Weeks Too Long. They've been working on this for months. The idea is to try and convince politicians to stop the five-week wait. And now, on Tuesday, MPs are going to debate this. They're going to debate how the Department for Work and Pensions spend their money. Now, the DWP could choose to end the five-week wait, give universal credit as soon as the application process is done, and immediately massively improve the lives of people like George. The Trussell Trust are calling on people to email their MP to ask them if they would join this debate and speak up for those who just cannot afford to live without any income for five weeks. As I finish, why are the Trussell Trust a Christian charity that only sets up food banks through churches? Why are the Trussell Trust doing this? Why is our food bank back in this campaign? Because if the good news really is good news, 
It has to be good news for every person at every level. Physically, spiritually, socially, educationally, emotionally, economically, and environmentally. So as we stop for questions, I'm going to ask you to stand with us and help us to help people like George. We've put the link to this Trussell Trust campaign on our website at oasiswaterloo.org slash five weeks and from there it's just a simple form. We're going to put some music on and we'll give you a few minutes. I'd ask you if you support this, if you'd like to stand with us to help people like George, that you would do that while we put this music on and then some paper will come around, some pens, there'll be a chance for you to ask questions about anything that I've said this morning and then after 10 minutes or so we will answer some of those. Okay, thanks for that. We've got quite a number. Um, Some of them are going to take a bit longer to answer than other ones, but um, we will try and get through as many as we can. Um, This evening at... Is this this an easy one? I don't want, you know... (laughs) Um, Great, okay, brilliant. We've got... I think we might be able to get through all of the questions that have been asked, which is good, but you never know. Um, yeah, if we don't get through all of them uh, this morning, or if you have another question that you think of while I'm going through this, uh, we're back this evening at 6.30 um, when Danielle is going to be talking on this same topic. And again, there'll be more chance for, uh, for questions at that point. Uh, is this one more question coming my way? Oh, it looks like lots. Is that a long question or is that lots of questions? Two. All right, we can cope with two more. Thanks. Um, wonderful. Are they easy ones? <laughs> Excellent. Um, brilliant. Okay. Um, if Jesus was alive today, what kind of person would he have been and what job would he have had? Um, I think it's quite interesting that we often talk about... Um, the job being the key thing, don't we? Um, so often I think that you know, people will say, um, what do you want your kids to be when you grow up? And I think the answer should be kind <laughs> rather than a doctor. <laughs> and I think that we quite easily go to, um, yeah, how are you going to sell your labor before you do anything else? I think that the um, example of Jesus uh, through the Bible is a pretty straightforward one, hopefully, that we uh, endeavor to follow here. So I would hope that what Jesus looks like is a bit like what we do and what we do looks a bit like what Jesus would look like. In terms of what job would he have? <laughs> Absolutely no idea. Something that helps people. Um, how do we ensure the good news is available to all when so many people are misinformed about things like universal credit and so many inaccurate stereotypes pursue about poverty and benefits? Um, yeah, uh, I think partly that's kind of what we're trying to do here. I think that we, you know, there's that famous phrase that we've used quite a lot of time about, you know, kind of reading the Bible in one hand and then holding the local newspaper in the other hand. And I think that there's something here about us doing the the day-to-day local stuff and also the big picture national stuff as well. So, you know, we told stories about food banks because we meet people like George and then we try and encourage you lots to, you know, come on a Sunday and then get involved in that campaign. You know, we we run a food bank day-to-day and then Rebecca and I also sit on the, um, the um, all-party parliamentary group on food banks. And so every couple of months we'll get to go and we'll get to go and talk to the people who are in power about all this kind of stuff. So I think it is that two things. It's about trying to, to do the practical day-to-day stuff, but also to try and do some of that big picture stuff as well. Would funds run out if there wasn't a five-week wait? It's probably a little bit too party political that we could get into this morning. I'm going to guess probably not. Um, <laughs> 
It is such a tough challenge to follow the mission. Can't we just have an easy life? <laughs> um, yeah, you could do, yeah. Um, I will tell you a story that I heard. Um, no, I won't. I can't tell you that story. <laughs> Certainly can't tell you that story with this on. I forgot about that. Um, yes, we could have an easy life. It just depends on what you want to do, doesn't it? Basically, yeah, you could merrily just, you know, go and do your nine to five and then come home and, you know, sit and watch the telly all day. But I think I would go nuts if I tried to do that. With such ambitious aims looking to help in so many aspects of life, how do we choose which ones to prioritize? Yeah, and I guess that's a... That's a sensible one, actually, isn't it? Looking at Oasis and about the church and its strategy, there are a load of things that we could be doing. You know, if we weren't putting all our effort into benefits advice, we could be doing something about the homelessness situation in this area. You know, there are, there are tons of things to do. I think what we've done is we've tried to, um, we've tried to do lots of different types of projects, but they all have the similar aim, basically. So what we try to do here is to, to bring... Um, kind of, yeah, bring a bit of, of God's kingdom to earth and through however we do that. And so we, you know, we talk about creating um, hubs, we talk about creating local communities in which everyone can thrive. And so when we run a school, we run a school and we say it's about holistic education for the whole family. It's not just about getting the kids through um, through its GCSEs. And so it is that idea that we, are, we have a, a single kind of common thread that underpins everything that we do, and that is about community development, and it's about helping those um, who need our help most. Um, with such ambitious... Oh, that's that one again. Where did your translation of shalom come from? Um, actually, we... Shalom is one of the words that we use to underpin our philosophy of education in Oasis. So... Um, we, uh, we talk to all of the teachers when we, when we go and take over a school, um, and we, there are a lot of things that we do. What we say to the, the teaching staff at the school particularly is that you don't have to ascribe to the theology that we ascribe to, but you do have to ascribe to the ethos that comes out of that. So we say that the theological statement might be that God is love and that God loves all. We don't say that you have to follow a God that loves you don't even have to believe in a God of love, but there's an ethos that comes out of that. And because God is love and loves all, we should love all and we should include all. So we do expect you to follow the ethos of inclusion, even if you don't believe in the theology. So that's kind of, um, it underpins a lot of what our educational work and, and that um, definition of Shalom came from this philosophy of education that Oasis has written um, over the years. Um, is Oasis slash Steve slash Nathan going to launch a bid for political power, either through the ballot box or direct action? Why not have a protest or a march? <laughs> if yes, when? <laughs> Amazing. Um, I think we're all called to different things, aren't we? You know, that's, that's the, the reality of the situation. You know, we, we have an MP sitting in this room and an ex-MP sitting in this room and a local councillor in this room and somebody who's standing for the local council. You know, we, you know, we're in all of those areas, not all of us uh, individually, but yeah, as an organization we are and I think it is um, it is that thing that what we try to do is we try to do the local stuff on the ground and then it also influences the national thing as well um, how can we help people like George um, I have a similar problem um, about uh, yeah disability benefits um, yeah I think it, the same thing really we're trying to do this practical thing we're trying to do this um, the big picture thing I guess it's the same answer um, Thanks for doing the five-week petition. So much of the evangelical church thinks that 
um, consulting people is all that matters. How can we actively combat this passivity in other churches without alienating people? I actually think that that last bit's quite important. How can we do it without alienating people? I think that uh, all wings of the church over so many years have done that thing where uh, their bit of it is right and everybody else's bit of it is wrong and therefore you know, we hold ourselves up to be the gold standard and then we don't do anything with those other guys. Um, what we are trying to do here is we're part of a network of churches. So uh, Oasis Church Waterloo is part of South Bank Churches, which um, is what used to be called Churches Together in North Lambeth and District before it got a nice new name. And so we work every day with other churches across a range of denominations, trying to encourage those guys to, to do similar things. We actually set the Waterloo Food Bank up in conjunction with those other churches. And so we run the food bank out to here but then it's also open at St. John's, the Anglican Church in Waterloo, uh, once a week. It's also open at St. George the Martyr, the Anglican Church in Borough, uh, once a week as well. So we're already trying to do that stuff. We're working with people rather than trying to say that our way is the only way. Um, similar question to what we've had. Trying to find anything that's slightly difficult or slightly different. Um, why are Christians often satisfied to reduce salvation to just the life to come? Um, I don't know about you, but that's kind of what I was brought up with. You know, that's, that's the, that was the message of the church that, that I was brought up with. I think that um, the kind of historical bit behind that is that, you know, I touched on all of the, 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 the history through the Bible and, you know, this, this nation that's being dominated by um, empire and by superpowers. And, of course, those of you who know a bit more about history will know that as we carry on going through, then Christianity suddenly becomes a religion of the empire. And so suddenly Christianity is the religion that has kind of all of this power. And so um, the, at that point, that's when this kind of... Um, the the discussion about salvation meaning this and becoming this thing um, kind of really takes off really because it was seen as a way of those within the empire to encourage those to get involved um, in, uh, in uh, that kind of now imperial Christianity. Um, when Christianity became the state religion, they used hell to convince people to convert. Um, um, Uh, yeah, there's, there's one more question, I guess, which we've probably just about got time for, um, which is, has come out a number of times. Um, why does the church still only teach spiritual salvation and not shalom? But why weren't the people crying Hosanna to ask Jesus to save them both practically and spiritually? Why draw such a sharp distinction between the two? Well, that's a good one, isn't it? Kind of left the hardest one to last, really. Um, yeah, I think they probably were asking uh, Jesus to save them both practically and spiritually. And I guess that's probably quite an important way for us to finish, really, is to say that, you know, I talked quite a lot today about that practical outworking and the, what that means for us practically, partly because I feel like that's the gap. You know, my church experience has been that we've only talked about salvation from a religious point of view and not from this contextual practical thing. But yeah, I do believe that uh, people were asking Jesus to save them both practically and spiritually. They had these, um, you know, these prophecies that they had read as well. And I think that's the same of me, that I'm not saying that it's only about the practical. You know, we're not just saying that we're only here to do um, you know, kind of nice community services or anything like that. There has to be a, a reason for us doing that. And I still believe in a, you know, in a God that came in the person of Jesus that came on a donkey into Jerusalem. I believe in that practical story, but also I believe that it's that belief in Jesus that, that drives me to want to see the end of some of these injustices that we see.
I think that's it. That's all we have time for. <laughs> the end. <laughs>